Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Wow, it's an honor to be back in this sweet little community of ours called the One Voice Podcast. Mary, it's good to see you again. And we have a really special, a special guest with us today. He is the author of a new book called Chosen, a memoir of stolen boyhood. His name is Stephen Mills. Thank you for joining us today, Stephen. That's great to be here. Thanks, Nicole. Awesome. Well, um, thank you for sending me your book. It's beautiful. I love the, it's a hard copy that you sent me. The cover is amazing. And my goodness, what is inside is truly amazing to think about the impact that it can have. Um, specifically for me, when you're sharing your story, Stephen, as a survivor, and I would love for you to unpack a little of your story as much as you can in a little bit, but Um, I'm really excited to talk about institutional change. That's something that, um, Mm -hmm. I think is really important in the times that we're living in. And I think you're the voice for it. So, um, just, you know, as we kind of get going here, if you could just share a little bit of your backstory, I know that you, um, you're in your sixties, you just (laughs) wrote your story, a memoir for the first time, and you're inspired by the Me Too movement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that had a big I first, you know, the events covered in part one of the story occurred when I was 13, 14, 15. And I first tried writing this story in my early 30s, uh, but really ran into a, a brick wall, as it were, mm-hmm. and tried many times over the decades. And it, it wasn't until 2018 um, that I was able to finally start mm-hmm. and and get it done. And yeah. Part of that was inspired by uh, Me Too and just the bravery of of women stepping forward really inspired me and writers like Lacey Crawford, Notes on a Silencing, other women writers who just Mm -hmm. showed me that, you know, this, you could really do this. And, and on the, on the men's side of things, Juno Diaz, the great novelist, um, who wrote a remarkable piece in the New Yorker in early 2018 mm. uh, about his own uh, sexual abuse as a child, um, mm-hmm. which was just utterly so beautifully written. And at that point, several people called me and said, "You know, we really need more stories from men. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are these fantastic stories from women." who are Mm -hmm. stepping forward, but we really have this dearth of um, experiences in writing from men. And that's so important uh, because Mm -hmm. we know full well that um, men are, or boys are sexually assaulted at um, epidemic rates right now, anywhere between one and six to one and 12, Mm -hmm. depending on which studies you're looking at, but whatever it is, it's horrific and Mm -hmm. and way too many. Uh, And And so, so many wait to tell until so long, late in their lives. Yeah. I mean, average age of disclosure, according to child USA is 52. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, not surprising, uh, you know, to those of us who are survivors, we understand how right. long it takes to mm-hmm. unravel the shame and guilt and um, fear, uh, fear of exposure, among, you know, amongst other things. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's also important because in so many states, the statute of limitations will stop you from taking civil action in court against your abuser or the institutions that enabled your abuser. Uh, mm. Those will often stop you after age 18 or 22 or 25. And you know, here we have the average age of disclosure at 52. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, in my case, I didn't go to court till I was 65. Um, this is much more typical, really. Yes, um, yes. So that's one thing I'm working at, but we can talk about that later is yeah. changing those laws so that people yes. can hold institutions accountable. Yeah, I definitely do want to unpack a little of that. But first, I kind of want to talk about male survivorship. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I've been speaking for 20 years. I've obviously mm. met so many male survivors when I st- step off a stage or, you mm-hmm. know, those who email me their stories or, you know, however it might be. And 
I just notice always so much more, um, just there's such a stigma, yes, a stereotyping. Um, I feel like there's more layers of shame, confusion. Mm-hmm. The isolation is so much deeper and darker. To be honest with you, Stephen, you know we've been running Unleash, which is an eight week healing e course. It's a it's an online support group, and virtually every time I've offered a male group alongside a female group, um, just for support. Yeah. And I always have the same, like, I always have the same few men really wanting that, but it's like, we can't get enough to get it going. We can't yes, get like a right. solid five or more in it. Mm. And I know they're out there. <laughs> yes, they certainly sign. are. Yes. Yeah. And I, and, and it, you know, it's it interesting my because heart. I just, a literary hub just published a conversation between Lacey Crawford and I, and um, mm. one of the things, you know, when Lacey's book about her sexual assault as a teenager came out in 2020, she said that, you know, she heard from hundreds of women. Um, she heard from three men, all of whom scheduled phone calls to talk to her and she being the gracious human she is agreed to get on the phone and talk with them and all three of them canceled at the last minute mm, yeah and yeah. to me that's sort of that gets at exactly what you're talking about yes. you know the shame in men goes very very deep it's it's a little bit different i think with girls and women i don't i don't like to compare or say worse but it's a different it's uh, different animal for i think for a couple of reasons um okay. one is um, the sense of complicity is, is at that root of that shame with guys. And it, yeah. it goes back to just a very basic human physiological thing. The yep. boy body at age 12, 13, 14 is primed to respond to any touch. It doesn't matter what or who is touching you. You're going to, you know, your body sexually is going to respond. The yeah. predator understands that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the boy doesn't, right? So when my abuser was saying, oh, look, you want mm-hmm. this, right? right. You want to mm-hmm. be raped. Mm-hmm. That, so that immediately puts the boy in this position of complicity, like, oh my God, my body has betrayed me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I responded sexually, that mm-hmm. must he must be right. And mm-hmm. that is the source of shame that will last a lifetime, unless you're able to go back and really look at it and understand that this was just nature at work. This had nothing to do with, I did not want this. I did not ask for this. Um, He violated my body. Right. And then on top of that, to share that and to be educated early. And we're not, we don't have those tools at that age. Most children don't No, Mm -hmm. It's so important to teach kids that. And then layered on top of that, you know, you've got this cultural baggage Mm -hmm. around masculinity, uh, which is, you know, boys and men are supposed to be tough. We're supposed to be able Mm -hmm. to defend ourselves. Um, We have contempt for male weakness. I mean, any Mm -hmm. boy who has survived the grade school playground understands that we've got contempt for weakness. The last thing you want to do is be weak on the playground, right? Right. And then you become a target. And every guy understands this. So the the fear around exposure of being a victim, you know, this is what makes male victimization especially um, fraught, you know, for guys is you've got Mm -hmm. the sexual piece and then you've got the weakness. Oh my God, I'm not a real man. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's very that's very difficult. And if you look at the few movies that Hollywood has produced on this topic of boys being abused, like Mm, Prince of Tides, Mystic River, River, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Sleepers, uh, actually a good movie, but all of them have a very clear message, uh, Mm -hmm. which is that the abuse of boys is brutal, it's humiliating, and it is never to be discussed. I yeah. mean, we're supposed to bear our shame in silence. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, that's what guys do. You know, until the 90s, the sexual abuse of boys wasn't even considered a thing in psychology. It wasn't considered possible. You know, something mm-hmm. else had to be going on because boys defend themselves. So that's it couldn't be 
uh, it wasn't recognized. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the good news on the on the other side, and it's important for your listeners to know is that today, we've come a long way so that when guys are ready for support or to disclose, there are amazing online resources. There's Mm -hmm. one in six.org, there's male survivor.org, there's snap network, Mm -hmm. which started in the Catholic Church, but Mm -hmm. is now welcome to all or I should say outside the Catholic church are victims of priests. It's a survivor's network. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are thousands of support groups, uh, forums, chat lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's actually quite an amazing subculture of, of male survivor support, uh, if you're mm-hmm. ready to tap into it. Mm-hmm. What have you found that men feel most comfortable with? as far as seeking resource and help, because, you know, from our perspective, it's been difficult to have Mm -hmm. men. I mean, they know they want the community. They want to know there's other guys out there that they're not alone, but taking that step to sign up for an eight week group, Mm -hmm. even though it's online, it's, it's proven to be really hard. Yes. So is there other steps or even um, something that we could be doing to create an even more um, safe kind of feeling and coming into that or other steps that should come before that. I think, you know, men for the, they want um, most of the organizations I just mentioned are running on kind of an, an AA kind of model, meaning mm-hmm. peer led, completely non-judgmental. Right. Um, and uh, unconditional support, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, for whatever participants are going through and, um, anonymity. Yeah. I don't know. You know, those are, those seem to be the things that are working. I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if, you know, it's a really interesting question and I'd have Mm -hmm. to actually talk to the folks who organize those kinds of groups to see what's, evolved over time or you and I could have a sidebar conversation about this yeah, because yeah. there are folks who have been doing it for a long time quite successfully and mm-hmm. it, and it could be just um yeah trying to work in that model that mm-hmm. will um what do you think about um male survivors and um the need for a specific gender therapist do you think that that's a thing um, do you think that groups run for men by men might be more important or do you think it's always different? You know, cause for female survivors, a lot of us prefer female therapists, mm. but I have some friends who actually prefer a male therapist mm-hmm. because of the impact that that made on their view of men. Right, right, right. Of course. You yeah. The, I look back on my own journey and I start, I was actually in one of the first uh, groups of male survivors. It was mm-hmm. in the 1980s uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. It was really kind of a pioneering group. And Neat. the the founder and therapist who ran that group, a guy named Eugene Porter, who's still working today with men and groups, um, for me, having a guy running the group was really important because okay. he was just through his own experience and mm-hmm. his own journey was kind of modeling for us what was possible. Mm-hmm. And he was very tuned into the issues that we cared most about yeah. uh, and our experiences. But I think in terms of individual therapy, I think that has everything to do with um, the individual yeah. because everyone, we're all set up differently. I mm-hmm. happened to start individual therapy uh in the eighties with a guy, uh, but mm-hmm. I've had female therapists mm-hmm. over the years after that. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were just fantastic experiences mm-hmm. and really key parts of my journey. I mean, ideally, I think everyone should have the opportunity to work with both a male and female therapist, because mm-hmm. you then really get to check out your own responses in real time to men and mm. women, you know, which is a pretty primary thing, um, yeah. especially if you've been, if you've been victimized, um, you know, we, we tend to carry, for example, um, most men I know, um, a very common thing I hear from them, male survivors is, I never trusted men after that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was m- always much more comfortable with women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was true for me too. So on the one hand, that suggests it might be easier to do therapy with a woman, at least to start. On the mm-hmm. other hand, if you never do therapy with a man, you may not get to all the blockage you have against trusting a guy and, mm-hmm. and being able to respond openly to a guy. Mm-hmm. That took me yeah. a long time in therapy because sure. my distrust of male authority was so deep, you know, understandably. Yeah. Absolutely. That, but yeah. the fact that I had the opportunity to work through that and to come to trust this person, that was a big deal. Mm, that is big. Yeah. yeah. And to your credit of taking that step, that's that's really big. Um, Stephen, I wonder if you could share just a little bit of your story, you know, and, you know, I know that your, your abuser was a social worker and, yeah. you know, it happened at a camp, but just could you give us a little bit of, of backstory on that and, um, sure. and kind of the aftershocks too. Right. Yeah. But, you know, the book, um, I'll give kind of a quick overview of the book it it takes place in three mm-hmm. parts or three acts as it were mm-hmm. uh and part one uh was well in the this is not a spoiler because it happens in the prologue my father died uh he had multiple sclerosis and died when i was four mm-hmm. um and then moved into a step family situation which wasn't particularly healthy and that set me up in a way as, as a target for this social worker who is the director of my Jewish summer camp. And mm-hmm. he, um, his MO was going after boys who either didn't have fathers or came from troubled families and had bad relationships with their fathers. Um, you know, that father figure thing is a very common thread in many cases of the abuse of boys. Um, mm-hmm. And it can, yeah. it can you know, starting with priests who, of course, literally carry the title father, but right. in all its iterations, wow. um, predators masquerading as uh, the caring father mm. uh, is a very common one. Mm. Um, anyway, he he spent the summer grooming me when I was 13. Mm. He then uh, began sexually abusing me when he got my mother's permission to take me up to the summer camp in the off season that fall. So it was just him and me a hundred miles from home in the middle of the woods, uh, when he assaulted me the first time. And then it, um, it continued for, uh, two more years. And, uh, so that's part one of the book is the experience from the child's point of view of what that experience was. Uh, Mm -hmm. and then part two of the book, Uh, are the aftershocks in my young adult life. We jump ahead to my 20s and um, the the ways in which I tried to numb that pain and the way I was dissociated from the experience of what had happened to me. And also the discovery in my early 20s that this perpetrator was still molesting boys in a different Mm -hmm. camp, in a different state. Uh, Mm -hmm. And how that, revelation um began cracking my denial about what had happened to me as a boy uh and which led to a confrontation with him unsuccessful Mm. uh and then the kind of unraveling of my own life you know as i couldn't really handle the truth of what had happened to me it overwhelmed me and a descent into drug abuse and petty crime and really trying to disappear myself literally Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh and so that that part of the book is called Flight. And then part three, which is called Reckoning, was, um, I guess, what you might call my journey to recovery um, mm-hmm. and uh, beginning to heal and and ultimately making this decision that I had to stop him because yeah. he was in yet another state and in yet another camp still abusing boys <sighs> um, and no one else had stopped him. So right. um it's part three is my story of, of reaching out to other victims, taking that evidence to the FBI and the Allegheny County district attorney in Pennsylvania. Uh, Mm. and I won't give away what happens, but that's, um, (laughs) it's very plot driven. Mm -hmm. And that is where the book goes, you know, is to that final confrontation with him, uh, and, 
uh, where things stand today because I've, I've filed suit under the Child Victims Act in New York to hold his employers accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that case is ongoing. So anyway, that's the, yes. that's the overview. Yeah, I, I love that you have this, this case that you're still fighting for right now. I think it's really important. I also think your book should be made into a movie. <laughs> and I just deeply admire, Stephen, your, your willingness to seek and create institutional change. I mean, your work to bring your abuser to justice, but then also to protect future boys from not only his predation, but, you know, people like him. There's so many like him out there who are being covered up for who it's, you know, uh, the system's set up to protect abusers. It absolutely is. And that's something, you know, I've been talking a lot about because people don't grasp as I say quite often, you know, it takes a village to shield a, a predator um, yes. because it does. Here was a guy who moved through, mm-hmm. was employed by three different social service agencies or more and worked in six states and had access to thousands of children mm. because the system, uh, and I don't care whether you're talking Catholic, Baptist, Jewish, it, you know, this yeah. is a human problem. Uh, and as but it's humans, a faith, it's a faith system problem too i think every part of religion and the camps that are set up for children i mean it's everywhere in it and i do think that it's like uh boys will be boys we're gonna cover for our friends we're gonna forgive the sin and silence the victims it's it's in those communities specifically Mm. yeah that's interesting uh because you know, one of the things about religion is um, a, a claim to absolute truth. And I don't care if you're talking Catholic, Baptist, Jewish, mm-hmm. um, a claim to absolute truth is a claim to absolute power. Yeah. And that's very dangerous it because is. anytime you've got a claim to absolute power, it will be abused. And mm-hmm. um, that's just the nature of how humans operate, right? I mean, we see it all the time. Right. And so in inside a community, it is so difficult to challenge power. Yeah. Uh, and certainly in the communities where I was a kid and then in my 20s and 30s, going back and looking at these different, in my case, these were Jewish communities. It is so hard. It was so difficult for the colleagues of this person uh, to speak up, even if they had suspicions because they feared for their jobs. It was so hard for parents to speak up if they had suspicions because who wants to be uh, ostracized and outcast, right? I mean, yeah. uh, the you're, each of us depends on community. Social ostracism is terrifying. You know, we don't want to be thrown out of a, out of a community or um, ignored uh, by everyone else and so there's a tendency especially when the abuser is always the the charismatic one the one that everyone and that's so important and that's another thing that you know culturally we still have this misconception that of stranger danger and the abuser is the guy lurking at the playground when in fact the most successful predators if i can use that term successful here Mm -hmm. um meaning has the most victims, Mm -hmm. uh, are extremely charismatic, revered, successful Mm -hmm. um, professionals often, right? Whether they're they're professionals as religious leaders or social workers or teachers, um, they are, they come, um, you know, the whole adult community is pre-groomed, as it were, right? To not just accept this person, but to revere this person. Mm -hmm. And so for anyone to suggest that this sort of godlike hero is in fact uh, a child abusing charlatan, Mm -hmm. that is is a heavy duty charge Mm -hmm. to level in a community because then everyone, um, communities tend to be imprisoned by their beliefs about leaders. Uh, And even though we've seen time and time again, no matter what you see on the outside, none of us has any clue about the private life of another human being Mm. and what their sexual compulsions might be. And Mm. so assuming that you might know that just because this person 
talks a good line is in fact an ethical human being, that's simply not the case. And, you know, we have enough evidence to know that. And, but yeah. so, you know, this is why I think it is so important not to rely on, um, it's, it's wonderful to ask individuals to speak up, but really what you need are hard and fast child protection measures in place that are enforceable uh, and that leaders have to answer to, and that the culture of an institution, whether it's a religious institution uh, or any youth serving organization, really has to be educated from top to bottom mm -hmm. that the safety of children is job one, not two yeah. or three or 10, it's number one, right? right. I mean, if, if you've been entrusted with children, that has to be your, mm -hmm. your number one task and everything has to be oriented toward that goal yeah. of protecting mm. kids right and so mm. um this is this is not a simple thing to do uh to reorient uh the cultures of religious groups and other groups toward protecting children because almost always when there's a charge of child sexual abuse institutions circle the wagons yeah. and the leader in the institution gets protected mm. and the kids come last yeah yeah don't you think that just education on grooming is, I think it's like so important because those are the things that especially institutions and friends of leaders overlook because mm -hmm. grooming is, it can come across as something so positive, unless you're just willing to think about, you know, one in three girls, one in six boys are sexually abused. They often know the abuser, you know, the abusers often loved and known in the neighborhoods or whatever, unless you're thinking about the truth and the facts, then grooming looks amazing. And this is like the hero in the community. Of course, you can drive my child to the pool today. And of course you can babysit, you know, mm -hmm. or whatever, like, yeah, unless absolutely. you are aware. And so I, I think that that has to be one of the most important parts, in addition to what you're saying about protocols. Yes, for abs well, it is part of the protocol, mm. honestly, and in this way, because, you know, back when I was sexually abused, late 1960s, mm -hmm. we didn't understand grooming that well. No, but hey, it's 2022. And we understand it in great detail mm -hmm. and with mountains of evidence of how it works. And yeah. so, for example, um, I'm, I'm serving right now as an ambassador for Child USA, which is the leading think tank on um, child sexual abuse and, and other children's civil rights issues. Great. Child USA last year issued something they called the gold standard. Uh, and the gold standard of child protection is a set of protocols that institutions should be putting in place uh, mm -hmm. to protect kids. And it's based on their study of thousands of cases of child sexual abuse inside religious and other institutions and what measures worked and what measures didn't work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, based on the actual experience of kids, they came up with these measures. Mm -hmm. Now, the whole premise of it is to interrupt, to stop abuse before it occurs, to, to interrupt it in the grooming stage. So mm -hmm. exactly what you're describing. I mean, mm -hmm. these grooming behaviors now are very well known and they're called red flag behaviors for a good reason. So mm -hmm. any inappropriate one-on-one -on -one time, any gift giving, any overnights with a child. I mean, the mm -hmm. list goes on and on, but yeah. these things as but you keep say- going. <laughs> yeah. I think people need to know these things. Yes, because these are the things that, for example, you know, my mother, she thought it was just, wow, it, it was, you know, so fantastic that the social worker was showing Stephen you know, all this special attention mm -hmm. and willing to take him away on these special vacations. Mm -hmm. um, so to your point, these things that tend to boost the ego of parents, right, uh, mm -hmm. and the child at first mm -hmm. um, are exactly the behaviors uh, of entrapment, right? That's the con right yes. there, right? And then the trap yes. springs shut uh, and mm -hmm. then it's too late. So I totally agree. I mean, um, recognizing these red flag behaviors and reporting them and requiring employees to report them. That's, mm. that's the key part, right? right? Is that everyone 
in yeah. a community has to be required to report any red flag behavior. That doesn't mean that the person is going to be like fired that day. Mm -hmm. It just means that people in the institution who are authorized to investigate mm -hmm. will investigate. Absolutely. And if, if there's nothing there, there's nothing there. But if there it's is, so then you get that person out before the abuse occurs. Yeah. And normalize the reporting because if yeah. it's somebody that you're friends with or who is your boss and you're just like, mm. but it's yeah. like, if it is so serious in our institution that you have to report and there's, here's all these red flags listed. If you see this, you must report. Now it's on you if you don't do it. That I think has to become yes. part of the process. Yeah. So, I mean, you read my mind or the gold standard because that's one mm. of the key things is okay. rewarding rather than penalizing whistleblowers. Great. Mm -hmm. So so any parent that's or employee great. or child who reports one of the behaviors that they've been educated to recognize mm -hmm. uh, is rewarded. Um, in, you know, in terms of being thanked and recognized in the community for having That's done good. a positive thing for the community, right? As mm -hmm. opposed to, as you say now, that person's at, at risk of losing their job or being ostracized um, by their friends and or coworkers. And that's a really, mm -hmm. that's what makes it so tough. You're, you're really swimming against the tide right now in most institutions uh, to report someone. I just wanted to pause for a second. To me, it's no greater time than now, really, to think about as a survivor of abuse, to think about our own healing journey. And, you know, we can do a lot of healing on our own or one-on-one -on -one in therapy, but there's just something special about meeting with other survivors. And Mary, you and I just finished an eight-week course with a handful of survivors in our new e-course and virtual support group called Unleash. And don't you think it was like more than we ever expected? My goodness. I mean, just in awe of the response from all of the participants. And, you know, we're not going to shy away from the fact that this is a really big decision. This is really hard in the midst of just regular hearts, life stuff. And then making a bigger decision to go after your healing journey is not easy, but from the responses we've received and just the comments we've heard, the hard decision is well worth it. Absolutely. I think it's just, you know, people finding that safe space to come back to every week where you can kind of let down all the expectations and all the things that you feel like you're supposed to be living up to and just be yourself and talk about the hard things with a group of other survivors who just really get it. So it's called Unleash. It's an eight week survivor created e-course. There's film, storytelling, personal contemplation exercises, journal prompts. And then we meet virtually every week for eight weeks in this really special small group support group just to walk through this journey of healing from sexual abuse together. If you want to sign up, go ahead. It's at IamOneVoice.org. IamOneVoice.org. So just go there and check it out. There's always going to be an option for an eight-week course for you to sign up and join. They max out at eight participants each. And I just think you're going to love it. And even just this last time, we've had two survivors from the first round sign up for another round. So I think it's just something that you can even come back to at different places in your journey, no matter where you're at. It's called Unleash. You do not want to miss it. The summer session open, ready to roll. So sign up now. Find out more when you go online. I am onevoice.org. I am onevoice.org. I'm wondering, how did your experiences even just influencing your parenting? You know, did you ever allow your son to? Yeah, so or? Know, that's in retrospect. So my son now is, well, he's turning 30 next month. Um, when he was, honestly, when he turned 12, 13, um, that was a really profound time yeah. for me because yeah. it may have been the first time I really grasped the innocence mm. that I held at that age and the vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So um, did that give you more grace and self-love and compassion or was it 
kind of it in was the still, opposite extreme. Well, quite honestly, so this was um, this was about twenty years ago, mm-hmm. and um, eighteen years ago, I guess to be exact. And I was still carrying a lot of shame. I mean, certainly so much shame that I still couldn't write about it. And in retrospect, I would have done things differently. I did not have uh, a talk with him about his body, proper touch, improper touch, the things that today I would do. Mm -hmm. Um, What I didn't, and part of that was at the time, I was still so, um, I still had so much fear around men and authority. And I didn't want to transfer that to him. Mm, In other words, I didn't want to put all of my experience and baggage on him. He already had his own anxieties to deal with in the Mm -hmm. world, right? Right. Um, I don't, I am actually, as I said, if I had to do it over, I would have, I just would have customized it to him and who he was and just conveyed the message. Um, What I did do was I watched him and his, um, all of his activities like a hawk. Mm -hmm. And I certainly never let him be with an adult for more than 60 seconds alone. (laughs) Um, And because it's, it's just not appropriate, you know, unless it was, for example, with a, you know, a tutor and it was in our house, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know male survivors who um, simply will not let their son be with other adults at all. And, you know, in my mind, that's going too far to the other extreme. Um, and I was trying to, you know, be mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle of yeah. being very watchful and mm-hmm. always questioning exactly yeah. what was going to happen on if it was an overnight trip, for example, you know, that the boys were all going to be sleeping together, that this is a very common thing, by the way, in youth serving organizations. And I hear this from male survivors all the time. Oh, yeah, we had this overnight trip. And uh, it just so happened that there was an extra bed in the adults room and they had mm. to you know put one kid in that room with the adult and that kid was me wow. right so this is a very common um way of predators getting you know you book the double room and you pull another kid in there so mm-hmm. um mm. i would say that i was you know extremely watchful and cautious uh but didn't do enough open communicating um with my son you know but and you know that said um he's grown up to be uh you know a very sensitive caring supportive guy you know wonderful i think one of the biggest challenges of being a survivor um like you said you your child hits that age where you were being abused and you know, there's a whole lot to deal with just diving into this world of, you know, ha- trying to have self-love as I, I look at my little boy and man, the, the innocence there and really tapping into some self-care for me um, and little Mary, but then also mm-hmm. all the triggers. And I think about, like you said, I see the innocence of that little boy that I had at that age that I lost. So as a mom now of a seven-year-old, I'm constantly wrestling with how to be hyper-vigilant, but not a psychopath. <laughs> not drive myself crazy where I'm losing sleep all the time, but making sure I'm equipping him with the proper language, um, with the proper scenarios that I'm keeping him as safe as possible. Um, you know, and you can feel a little crazy sometimes as a survivor of abuse, as a mom, as a dad, it's just, um, mm. I wouldn't wish this for anybody. Um, mm. but also we now get to set up a life for our kids that we didn't have. If our yes, parents, yes. whoever the caretaker was, yeah. Protect- then more power to you. It sounds like you're doing a great job and it is complicated and it, there's no way around that, you know, and it is challenging, but because we're talking about our kids, right? I mean, so there's so much at stake, but it's, that's fantastic. You're doing that. That's really, really, that's wonderful. You know, there's, there's a, a scene in Chosen, um, my memoir in part two, when I see uh, the, the man who had abused me go into a cabin 
with a 12 year old boy who looked exactly like me uh, when I was that age. And that is the moment where the lightning bolt strikes. And I realize uh, that I suddenly understand first in my body and then in my mind what had happened to me because I had never comprehended it. Uh, but somehow seeing this kid who was dwarfed by this much larger man um, gave me that mirror image and that perspective to finally get it as an adult. So there's something about that. When you see the age you were, um, your brain processes it in a different way. And a lot of other victims of the same perpetrator have told me in the last few weeks that reading that part in the book was really profound for them. And some mm -hmm. of them still thought they were the only one to this mm -hmm. day, okay, 50 years later. And yeah. so reading that, one of them, he called me last weekend, he said, you know, there was something about that scene for the first time I understood the extent of the damage that must have been done to so many kids. You know, he had just somehow never, because of course we're, we get so uh, claustrophobic and cocooned in our own experience and, and the, the perpetrator understands that. He wants you to think you're the only one. Yeah. And so all of the shame and self-judgment and self-hate that grows up around it stops you from seeing what's going on around you. Because I know for myself, I spent my teenage years trying to disappear. That was like a full-time job trying to disappear. I didn't want anyone to see me. I didn't want to see anyone else. I just wanted to go away. Yeah. And so um, you're not really paying attention to other kids and what's happening to them. Uh, mm -hmm. And, but, but when you're, when it's right in front of your face and you see it happening, um, that can be a, a real revelation. Absolutely. Oh gosh. I just hope all of our listeners get this book. I know it's going to be so just, I know that people are going to know like, wow, I am not alone. I hate that this happened for Steven and I hate that it happened to me. You know, I think mm -hmm. there's just a lot of parallels in your story, even just how you share. You're a really good writer. Um, just about the the grooming process. It's so accessible. I mean, because mm -hmm. it's so common. Um, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about justice. Um while we still have a little bit of time with you, Stephen, you know, sure. I think every survivor deserves justice if they choose it, you know, if they choose it for themselves mm -hmm. and you have fought so hard, you have, you know, a lot of times as a survivor, we will seek it, but as soon as we get shut down or we're silenced or we're blamed, it's like, we go into the cocoon again mm -hmm. and okay, well I tried and yeah. it's everything I thought it was going to be, you know, and that happened to you, but then you continued to go and tell the FBI and then go tell this institution and then go here. And like, you have not given up. And it does, <laughs> and, by, by the way, does not end because he, even today, mm -hmm. you know, these institutions are not particularly happy to be hearing from me no, uh, I'm know, sure. today, yes. 50 years later. And so, yes, absolutely. That's the, you know, we often call it the second wound or re-victimization. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. It is so hard to, come forward and uh, mm -hmm. just have it together enough to understand that it, this is not my shame. This mm -hmm. shame belongs to the criminal. I'm innocent yeah. and I'm going to speak my truth publicly. That's that can so take powerful. getting there takes as long as it takes. And that's great. It should take as long as it takes for someone to mm -hmm. feel comfortable. And, and then um, quite often, um, people may not want to hear that truth and that can be quite painful, yeah. you know? So yeah, I, I had to face that in 1978 again in 1986 when I went to law enforcement and, um, and even today, uh, when, you know, some of the institutions and I'm speaking now in the Jewish community, I mean, I'm speaking with all communities, but I grew up in the Jewish community. And it's really important to me that the institutions that employed this person 
take a long, hard look at how he was able to uh, move from one institution to another for decades and yeah. abuse so many kids. Because if you can't, uh, if you can't investigate yourself as an institution uh, and figure out what went wrong mm-hmm. um, in your recent history, then how can we count on you to protect our kids this summer? I mean, That's right. I wouldn't if, no. <laughs> if I were a parent. No uh, so um, it's a sign in institutions that they really are on top of this if mm-hmm. they're willing to look for the truth in the past. If they're not, that's a red flag, you know, yeah. that, that institutions aren't making this a priority. So, but, but being, stepping forward uh, and for example, uh, filing suit and those are, those are very difficult things. And I think each person has to um, come to terms with if they're ready to do that and when they're ready to do that and being mm-hmm. prepared uh, for, you know, as one survivor friend of mine says, um, you know, when you're younger, it's like, well, why didn't you say something? And now that mm-hmm. she's older, it's why don't you shut up? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, wow. Yeah. You know, you get it at both ends. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, it, the bottom line is in, in my mind or guiding principle is always that the truth will protect me because it is what it is <laughs> and I know yeah. it's true so yes. um yes. I don't fear and you, you saying that work. you saying that one line there about you know as a kid you know why didn't you tell and then as an adult why don't you shut up it makes me think about Nicole you will know her name I can't recall but one of the Nasser Dr. Nasser victims and in trial I remember when she got to read her letter and she mm-hmm. said you didn't realize that these little girls grow up into strong, powerful women. <laughs> and now right. you have to yeah. listen to us. <laughs> right. right. I love that. That's right. I love that. Yeah. Wow. What that was such power. That was, and I, I talk about that at the end of my book, because it's definitely one of the things that prompted me to go to court mm. was those 156 women mm-hmm. speaking their truth to him in court. That was yeah. a very, very powerful yeah. moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah kind of thinking about the re-traumatization that can happen when you are seeking justice, when you're finding your voice, when you're gathering other victim stories and trying to make change. I mean, Stephen, how do you keep going? Is there, I know that you're in therapy. I know that you've done the work, but like, how, how do you keep going when, you know, there's a lot of haters, there's mm-hmm. not been justice. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then like me, you keep doing this work and you continue to collect the stories of other survivors. It's so painful. It's heavy. I've been talking with a lot of my friends who are in the field and a lot of us are really dealing with, you know, PTSD from holding space for others who've been hurting. I think it's crucially important to find, um, you know, sources of not just support for oneself therapeutically, but whatever it is that gives you joy and release. Mm-hmm. And yeah. whether that's, you know, for me, I'm lucky enough to live near the beach. It's, you know, it's walking by the beach, it's hiking with my wife, it's, you know, like mm-hmm. um, getting to do stuff with my son. I mean, whatever going on, you know, I'm we're taking a long overdue vacation it's so important to recharge the batteries if you're mm-hmm. doing this work and especially yeah. you know advocating and really try to unplug from it and especially now with social media and everything else right. um, it's very tough to escape you know the 24 7 cycle mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and um you know what keeps driving me is uh the the belief that you know if my book and the advocacy can help protect one kid or two kids or three kids from going through what I went through. That is just uh, a tremendous outcome, you know, because yeah. um, I know that 
uh, the aftershocks of abuse last a lifetime. And I know I, I grasp now fully the innocence of kids at, at my age when this happened to me. Mm-hmm. And if it can help a family understand and head this off to understand how predators operate, to interrupt that cycle, to change mm-hmm. institutions even a little bit, which yeah. I do believe is happening, then that's, that's a huge step forward. And, you know, yes. it's, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that tremendous progress has been made. I mean, mm-hmm. just the fact of your podcast, <laughs> that the, right. this was not here 10 years ago, much less 20 right. years ago, right? right. Oh, uh, yeah. Survivor support groups were not mm-hmm. here. Uh, so it's a brave new world and it's fantastic. Um, so it's, yeah. it's not, and I, hmm. you know, we should all be, well, I'm, I'll just speak for myself. I'm hugely hmm. grateful for that network, yeah. you know, of people like yeah. you. And, you know, the other thing I do is I got to say, I, I'm still in a weekly men's group, male survivor group. It meets every Saturday morning virtually. Um, Great. And to me, that's a very grounding thing mm-hmm. because I don't have to be on, I don't have to be presenting, I don't have to be advocating. Uh-huh. You know, I can just be a puddle on the floor. <laughs> that's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And they totally get it. I mean, honestly, it's the one space in my life. And I think it's true for all the, the guys in that group where um, there is just zero pretense, zero bullshit, zero having to explain ourselves in a way that we think will make the other person like us or accept yeah. us or, you know what I mean? It's just a hundred percent honesty. Yeah. And so that's um, very grounding mm-hmm. for me, having that kind of, you know, mutual support. Yeah. And, and also, oddly enough, recharges my batteries because it, it reminds me every week why we do what we do. Um, because there's plenty of guys in that group um, who are at the front end of this young men who had the courage, you know, to reach out and join this group uh, Mm -hmm. who are grappling with demons that I remember all too well, you know, that really day-to-day survival. Um, And that's, that's a reality check. That you is, know of, yeah. of what's at stake and i i really i need that yeah yeah uh, yeah i definitely relate to that i think our unleashed groups are the highlights of my week mm-hmm. and just gathering with other survivors and taking off the masks just showing up as you are and yeah well put yeah it's really important and everything you're saying too just the the strides that we have made in the past couple of decades sometimes you forget you know because you get bombarded with the stories and it never ends and now another leader that everyone thought they could trust and then this and it just gets overwhelming but it is hopeful that there's a lot of hope there when you think of in our lifetime the strides we've made yeah, absolutely. I, mm-hmm. I'm sure you see it. I know I've been seeing it since the book's publication. I am hearing from yeah. survivors in all communities um, mm-hmm. and Baptist, Catholic, Jewish, Amish, mm-hmm. um, Buddhist, you name it. And um, people are absolutely intent on uh, joining up, joining forces, mm-hmm. you know, finding power in numbers. Uh, and, and some of these communities, for example, the Orthodox Jewish community, which is very closed, um, Mm -hmm. and extremely insular and almost impossible to, um, uh, you know, to challenge from the inside. Uh, but there is a fantastic now survivor watchdog group in the Orthodox community. It was unthinkable a few years wow. ago. And a mm. lot of women inside that community wow. who standing up and saying enough is enough. This just, <laughs> we are not going to take this anymore and we're yeah. not going to be silenced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that to me is a real milestone. Mm-hmm. Just fantastic. Sure Well, your book is a real milestone, Steven. I think your hopes of it helping people 
singly as survivors, but also just institutionally. Um, I think this is going to really shatter a lot of strongholds and open up um, a lot of people to not only find their voice, but to really heal and to be a part of this change that you seek. I mean, there's no question that your work is going to do so much. I'm sure it already has. Um, I don't know if just as we kind of close up here, Stephen, would you have any words for any of the our precious male survivors who listen and love our community? Um, I think a lot of them just feel a lot of times unseen in these spaces as men and oftentimes feel stuck, um, mm-hmm. you know, wanting healing, but just not knowing. I don't know. Honestly, a lot of the male survivors that I love and adore so much, they are so careful to not want to step on the toes of female survivors, wanting us to have the space first. And I'm like, we own all the spaces, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I just, could you just encourage them? Yeah, it yeah, it's interesting what you say because I think women have, especially since me too, this sense of sisterhood and mm-hmm. solidarity that that boys and men do not yet have and are very there's this as you say a common thing amongst guys of um oh i am not worthy or my victimization wasn't as bad and you know sometimes even trying to make light of it you know or minimize yeah and um so i think um you know getting into the comparing mind comparing game and is there's a real um uh, not at all helpful. Uh, whatever you suffered is worthy um, of compassion and support. And it's important um, based on, you know, my experiences, it's really important to honor your own experience and pain and what happened to you, no matter how small you think it might be, or in your mind, comparing it to what others went through, Mm. it lives in your body and in your psyche. And if you don't face it, it'll eat you from the inside. Mm. And um, if you do face it, um, then it will empower you and release you. And that can take a long, long time, but that's okay. I mean, we're all here anyway <laughs> on this, whatever this journey is, uh, however long our lives are, uh, you know, it's, it, in my view, better to spend it releasing yourself from what happened to you as a kid. And so I think, you know, to guys, I'd say, try to let go of your judgments of um, what you suffered, that it wasn't all that bad, or it's, it's bad, but I don't deserve help or no one's going to understand me or, you know, whatever your little mental, um, you know, wind up line is to yourself. Um, yeah. Let go of it and, and find a safe space, uh, whether it's a group. I mean, again, I would underscore that there, I mean, in addition to the groups that you're offering, there are groups like um, snap snap network, uh, mm-hmm. .org and malesurvivor.org that have amazing uh, daily, weekly men's support groups with, uh, I guarantee you that every single guy, including me, went into those groups feeling the way you do, you know, that I am not worthy of uh, mm-hmm. attention, right, mm-hmm. from others, uh, uh, much less compassion, love, support, uh, you know, on this journey. And uh, I think the single biggest thing you can do is is reach out in that way, uh, mm. and it's it's so incredibly uh, rewarding and pivotal because once you see your own experience reflected in the experience of others, uh, and you listen to other guys talk about what happened to them and how they've emerged from it and recovered or or on the journey of recovery, uh, it opens up a whole field of possibilities Mm -hmm. for what you can do. And I think that's why it's so powerful because it's not about you and it's like, oh, okay, there's (laughs) 
all these other guys have been through this in some form or another and are um, sharing it and moving forward with their lives in a way that uh, accepts it and speaks it instead of denies it. And Mm -hmm. the denial thing will just eat you up because it takes 99% of your life energy to Mm. sit on top of this kind of wound without acknowledging it. Yeah, you may not realize that, but that's what's going on. That's that's really well said. And on top of that, everyone should pick up your book, "Chosen" by Stephen Mills. It's out. It is ready to be read, and it is amazing. So, thank you, Stephen, for just your kindness, your candor, just being open and vulnerable, and also just teaching us and giving us hope. I just really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks. Well, thank you both for having me on. This is this has been great. And also we will link to your website. I saw on your website, you have lots of resources for male survivors. I really appreciate mm, finding yeah. that. And I think that'll be really helpful, um, not only for male survivors, but for all of us. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.